You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, Operations Manager of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, a chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. I hope the summer's going well for you. It's definitely different this year with no open houses at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse, but I hope you're enjoying the warm weather. It's been really warm lately. I actually prefer the cooler weather, so I'm pretty grateful for my air conditioner right now. Um, But most nights have been pretty comfortable here. Yeah. Well, uh, this episode we're recording, let's see, what is today's date? July 9th? We're recording on July 9th, but this episode of the podcast will be released on July 20th, 2020. 7-20-2020. On July 20th, 1969, Apollo 11 landed, and Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin became the first humans to walk on the moon. I know that was before your time, Cindy, but I was glued to our black and white TV, just like everybody else was at that time. That you you don't yeah you don't remember that you weren't born yet right? I just a little before my time. That's right. Yeah, this is also the 82nd birthday of the English actress Diana Rigg. Uh, that's also I think pretty much before your time. The show The Avengers. I fell in love with her when she played the spy Emma Peel on the TV series The Avengers in the 1960s. Also, the famous mountaineer Sir Edmund Hillary was born on July 20th, 1919. Many people think he said, because it is there, when someone asked him why he climbed Mount Everest. Actually, someone else said that. But Edmund Hillary once said, quote, I think it all comes down to motivation. If you really want to do something, you will work hard for it, unquote. He also once said, quote, life's a bit like mountaineering, never look down, unquote. Does that remind you of anyone else, Cindy? Yes, it does. Uh, Connie Small, author of The Lighthouse Keeper's Wife. When she first went to Lubeck Channel Lighthouse in Maine, where her husband was an assistant keeper and she had to climb the ladder, he told her to look up and not down. So her motto for the rest of her life was, always look up and never look down. Yeah, and Connie Small lived to be 103, so she was doing something right. She became our honorary chairperson for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. And speaking of main lighthouses, today's subject is Mount Desert Rock, one of the most isolated light stations in the United States, and our guest is Sean Todd. By the way, the name is traditionally pronounced dessert, like the last course of a meal, similar to the French pronunciation dessert, although it's probably more commonly pronounced these days as desert, like the Sahara. Cindy, please help me tell our listeners about Mount Desert Rock. Sure, Jeremy. More than 20 miles from the nearest port at Mount Desert Island, low-lying, wave-swept Mount Desert Rock is only about 17 feet above sea level at its highest point. The French explorer Samuel de Champlain, during his visit to the area in 1604, named Mount Desert Rock and the much larger Mount Desert Island. Congress appropriated $5,000 for a lighthouse of Mount Desert Rock on March 2, 1829, to aid mariners heading to Frenchman and Blue Hill Bays from the south. The light went into operation on August 25, 1830, with a short wooden tower at one end of a stone keeper's dwelling. 
The structure weathered many storms before being replaced by a new 58-foot granite tower in 1847. The new tower was designed by the noted architect Alexander Paris. Despite its isolation, Mount Desert Rock was for many years a family station. It became a tradition each spring for the families to bring soil to the island for a garden, and local fishermen made contributions of earth from the mainland. By the summer, a beautiful flower garden would be in bloom. Vinyl O. Beale was one of the keepers at the station in the early 1900s. His daughter, Robina, described the unusual way her parents had of making sure she and her siblings were safe when playing outside. A line was attached to Robina's waist, with the other end looped around a clothesline that extended from the house to a derrick. This way, the children couldn't be washed away. The Rock later became a males-only station under the Coast Guard. On October 6, 1962, Hurricane Daisy struck the Rock, destroying the walkway between the house and tower, as well as sweeping away fuel tanks and other structures. The three Coast Guardsmen there at the time spent the night near the top of the lighthouse tower. One of the men, John Baxter, said later, quote, The bad thing was that when we went in the tower, you could feel the tower sway like someone was shaking it. It was scary. The station was automated in late 1977. The light station was then leased to Bar Harbor's College of the Atlantic for use as a whale watching station. Under the main lights program, Mount Desert Rock Light Station, along with Great Duck Island Light Station, became the property of the College of the Atlantic in 1998. Allied Whale is the Marine Mammal Research Division of College of the Atlantic. The facility at Mount Desert Rock is currently being expanded into a field station that goes beyond marine mammal science. Sean Todd is the Stephen K. Katona Chair in Marine Sciences at College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor. And he also directs Allied Whale, the college's marine mammal research program. He spent 10 years in Newfoundland as part of the Whale Disentanglement Team, a group that releases large entangled whales from fishing gear. In Maine, he is trained as part of a first response team that performs a similar function. Sean also acts as a professional guide, including 14 seasons in the Antarctic and 11 seasons in the Canadian Subarctic and Arctic. He created, wrote, and stars in the award-winning Life in the World's Oceans, a 30-part DVD series available from thegreatcourses.com. I had the pleasure of speaking with Sean in June. Let's listen to that conversation now. I'm speaking today with Sean Todd of College of the Atlantic and Allied Whale. Thank you so much for speaking with me, Sean. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. This is exciting. What led you to a career as a marine mammal researcher? Oh, gosh. That's a story that's probably too long for this podcast. Um, But essentially, um, visits to my grandma at the seaside, which coincided on weekends that uh, Jacques Cousteau, the underseas world of Jacques Cousteau was playing on television. Uh, my grandma was the first one to get a, a color TV in the family. And um, as a result of that, you know, I got to see spectacular, beautiful, amazing underwater images of what the world was like under the sea. And, um, you know, then just sort of playing those things out on the beach the day after. Uh, this is wonderful sense of freedom and love for the ocean that has never really gone away. And of course, I, I, I guess marine mammals represent the the quintessential organism that comes from the ocean you know they're they're spectacular they're large uh they are um 
they have characters, they have personalities very much the same way that dogs do. Um, so it's, 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 it's not a, it's not a hard job to love. I love what I do. Well, I'll tell you a little quick secret. As a kid, I, uh, long before I was interested in lighthouses, I wanted to be a marine biologist and, uh, Jacques Cousteau was a hero of mine. So yeah, I, uh, I can totally understand what you're saying there. So let's uh, skip ahead to Mount Desert Rock. Uh, and before I ask the question I was about to ask, let me ask you a really important question here. What is the correct pronunciation as far as you're concerned? Is it Mount Desert Rock or is it Mount Desert Rock? Oh, that's easy. It's just MDR or the rock. <laughs> <laughs> okay, excellent answer. You know, uh, it's probably pretty evenly divided uh, between uh, Mount Desert and Mount Desert. I know the traditional pronunciation uh, is uh, dessert kind of based on the Mount Desert uh, from, exactly. Fran- from Il- French. The yeah. French, Ile de Mont Desert. Oui. Yeah, yeah. So I tend to say dessert based on the traditional pronunciation, but we'll go with MDR for the rest of the, the sure. interview. How about or, that? or the rock, the rock. <laughs> So yes. when, we talk about, when we talk about The Rock in this podcast, we're not talking about Alcatraz, we're talking about MDR. <laughs> right. Okay, we'll go with MDR or The Rock for the rest of uh, today. So what makes MDR a good place for the observation of marine mammals? As I like to say to my classes, if you are a 50-foot whale with a 15-foot mouth that has to shift you know, multiple tons of water per gulp, you know, with a, fourth, with a, with a, uh, with a, a two to three ton tongue, that has to press that water out of, out of your mouth every time you take a gulp of food. Um, when you do take a gulp of food, it better be worth it. So, you know, whales, the, the distribution of whales is quite deliberate. They tend to go to places where there is lots of food. And uh, Mount Desert Rock represents what an oceanographer would call a bathymetric upwelling. So it's a place where we have plenty of nutrients being upwelled uh, from very deep, cold, uh, actually Arctic-born currents in the area uh, that are bringing nutrients to the surface uh, and kick-starting an amazing uh, reaction of productivity, uh, which, you know, just works up the chain. So, you, you know, you start at the plankton, you go up to the fish, and eventually you get to the whales and the seabirds and the seals. So it's uh, traditionally, uh, um, well, it has been in the past, let's say, traditionally an amazing place to go see whales. And, and that's, that's the reason why the college got involved with Mount Rock very early on. Even when we didn't own the island, um, you know, um, working there by permission of the Coast Guard, it just, it just meant that rather than have to do the two and a half hour steam every day to get out to start work, we could instead live on the island, um, step, off, step off the island onto a zodiac and literally be right in the middle of large concentrations of whales. So a, a, ver- a very good place to work. And of course, because there's a light tower there, again, by permission of the Coast Guard, uh, at least in, in the time when we didn't own it, if it was too rough to go out, we could still go up in the tower and do very, very useful and important data collection just by watching the whales at a distance. So uh, if you could please explain the basic workings of the field station on uh, MDR. Who is typically out there and what takes place there? Yeah, so we, we owe our presence on, to the, uh, on the island to several wonderful and very generous patrons and the station is named after one of those uh, the ed mccormick blair marine research station and uh, we've also had other benefactors uh, most recently the mars family was very uh, generous in helping us uh, rebuild the island uh, probably more about that later 
it's owned fully by the college now at this point. Uh, we, we, we still maintain a relationship with the Coast Guard. So obviously the Coast Guard owns the aids, the navigation that are on the island, which includes the, the light tower and the Falkhorn and, and various um, uh, meteorological equipment. Uh, but otherwise, we own the entire facility. And, the, and the, idea, the idea is is that essentially MDR, in addition to Great Duck Island, which is you know, the other lighthouse island that we own, um, or at least we own part of, it's, it's an extension of the COA campus. And you know, did, not to sound too cheesy, but we like to say we are college of the Atlantic. We're not, we're not college by the Atlantic. We are of the Atlantic. Uh, and um, the primary mission of the college is to investigate issues of, of human ecology, which is essentially the, the art and science of investigating humans' relationship to, to the world and to each other. Uh, and it's a, it's a very sort of transdisciplinary type experience. So that means the kinds of students we tend to attract to the island tend to have a science focus because they're interested in marine research, uh, but they don't have to. You know, I've had fantastic uh, artists go out there and develop amazing portfolios. I've had, ha- I've had sound artists go out there, do soundscapes and recordings. I've had musicians go out there. I've had writers go out there simply for the inspiration, you know, just to write something. Um, so it, it does attract uh, a pretty broad demographic of different students that go out there. Um, I am, uh, my position at the college is endowed as a chair and part of the discretionary funds I have tries to minimize any barrier for any student going out there. So, you know, a student will go out there essentially for free. And the, 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 the quid pro quo there is that uh, while they're out on the island pursuing their own studies, um, supervised by myself and other faculty, um, they will also engage in running the station. And that that in itself is a hugely valuable thing to be able to put in your resume. Um, so, you know, they not only do they know how to do the science, but they know how to live 25 miles offshore. Uh, they know how to operate the island. They understand the ecological footprint. As you know, uh, there is no fresh water out there. We have to bring all our fresh water in. Um, we have to bring in our own electricity because there's no cables under the water there. So we have to generate our own electricity through solar panels and generators and so on. We have to manage our own waste. Uh, it's a rock, so you can't, you know, you can't dig a hole in the ground. Um, so we have to manage our own waste in that sense as well. Uh, so both human and food waste. Uh, so you are very, very aware of your ecological footprint. And if something goes wrong, you can't simply phone up Brown's Appliance and ask them to come and fix it, right? So you have to, you have to be handy. You have to you know, know what to do with power tools. Managing an island like this, of course, we're in this sort of constant cycle of repair. Uh, so you know, a student that comes away from that is someone that not only has the science smarts, but also has the initiative and the skills to be living in, you wouldn't think so, but actually a fairly extreme environment. Uh, you know, it's, it's offshore and you're, you're away from all these things. So, sorry, a long answer to a short question, but essentially, you know, when a student graduates from the rock and they ask for a reference, and they, they almost instantly qualify for one because the, the people that come out of there are just so superb. We have fantastic students. Um, you know, I always write in my references, li- living at Mount Desert Rock, the, you know, the conditions are best described as primitive. 
and you need physical, mental, and social stamina to survive out there. And the person that comes out of that is quite an extraordinary, extraordinary graduate. And they go on to some amazing things. So, you know, I'm very proud of the program we offer. I think it's, it's, uh, it's out there. It's very extreme to some extent. Uh, and it really creates this feeling of independence. There are only a few hundred right whales left on this planet. Is the study of right whales one of the primary activities of what goes on at MDA? Uh, yeah. So, um, laterally, I would say. So, there's a number of things that have been going on at Mount Desert Rock for a very long time. Um, the, pr- the, the primary species we see around the rock, at least historically up to, say, around three or four years ago, and there's a, there's a huge asterisk associated with that, which we'll get into in a second, are humpbacks and finbacks. So that's been our bread and butter for a, for a very long time. We also have about a thousand seals hauled out on the island, uh, harbors and greys. So uh, th- those, are the, those are the principal species we're interested in. Now, every now and then we will see a right whale. And uh, something that we have discovered over the past um, three or four years is, is that our whale distributions are changing radically. So, uh, you know, I started off by saying the rock used to be a fantastic place to go and see whales. These days, it's not such a great place to see whales. The whales have moved offshore. Uh, they've moved further to the north. They've moved up towards the Canadian border. And that's all whales. That's not just right whales. So, you know, there is something we believe that is impacting the entire Gulf that is forcing all whales to move. And, you know, I I think if we discover what that is for the humpbacks and the fins, I strongly suspect it's going to be playing a role in what's going on with right whales as well. And and just just to blow the punchline, we think it's about prey. We think the Gulf of Maine is changing in its ability to produce uh, both prey of enough quantity and prey of enough quality, uh, calorific quality, uh, that can sustain, you know, our, our historical whale populations. And we have uh, both a, a main project going on right now within Allied Whale that many students are involved in, as well as side projects that individual students have chosen to take on. Uh, say, for example, looking at, uh, we have one student right now who's doing a fantastic job looking at a specific kind of uh, plankton, a keystone species, we call it the uh, the copepod, uh, and what copepods are doing uh, in in the Gulf, and whether or not they're being able to produce enough fat in their bodies, which in turn whales will eat, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's it, yes. So peripherally, we are we are involved in the right whale question, uh, and as as a as a research group in the Northeast, um, we are absolutely involved as being an educational resource for people. Uh, so that people could better understand the right whale problem, um, because obviously there's a lot of misinformation about the problem, uh, and there's a lot of just lack of knowledge and ignorance of the problem. So you know, part of our I see part of our role as as being trying to promote that. Uh, you touched on this a little bit already, but what is the downside of having a field station in such an isolated and exposed location as MDR? It's not for everyone. That's for sure. Uh, you know, I, 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 I take students out there for weeks at a time. Uh, and you will know within the first couple of days if, if, if this is for them or not. And, you know, we don't make them suffer. <laughs> if, they're not, if they're not enjoying it, we, we'll, we'll get them on a boat and we'll, we'll, we'll take them back home. There's a couple of things going on. First of all, you're taught to be super independent. I've certainly had students, when I've not been on the island, I've been at home, 
you know, that they've, they've had to phone me and be very descriptive about the problem that they're having so that we can sort of walk through exactly what needs to be done. Um, we have um, very poor access to the internet out there still. So uh, that's a challenge because I think um, these days, I think there's, we're coming to this change in, in the way we operate in this expectation that we should always be able to connect in some way. And Mount Desert Rock is not a place where you can connect to the World Wide Web. In fact, I would suggest that's an advantage. It's a wonderful, wonderful advantage. You know, all of a sudden you lose your cell phone signal and you can't connect. So that, that's challenging as well as itself. So it's, it's definitely a very isolating environment in that sense. Uh, and you, you, you have to be super independent about it. And the, the, the other thing that I, I, I find myself preparing students for, because I don't think they understand what they're going into uh, and why would they, um, is the social environment. Uh, you know, again, you are, you're on a rock. There are no trees on this rock. Uh, it is just a, uh, it's just a rock. So there's nowhere to hide. Uh, you know, everyone knows everyone's business. Your only private space on the island is, is your bedroom. But you might be sharing that. There might be a bunch of bunks in your dormitory, so you might be sharing it with people. So can you ever be truly alone? And the answer is not, not really. So you have to learn. You have to be very proactive about creating this team-like environment. And again, it's not for everyone. So while I'm very open to any of my students applying to come to this place, there is a vetting process because you, you have to know that these people will be okay. And then I guess finally there's the safety issue. If you're that far offshore and something were to go wrong, uh, we are 40 minutes outbound on a helicopter, then they land, then they do what they have to do, and then they've got 40 minutes to get back to a hospital. So, you know, pr you're probably talking about a two-hour from time of incident to reception at a hospital of any problem. So, you, you know, we're acutely aware of this. And for that reason, certainly my style of management on the rock is to kind of treat it like a ship. Uh, you know, we have watches. We have a very distinct hierarchy of who's in charge. Uh, we have a very distinctive handoff of power. So, you know, you know in the same way that when when someone takes over the helm, they say, I have the helm. And then they say, you have the helm, blah, blah, blah. And there's this redundancy back and forth between the two. We kind of do the same thing. You know, I have the station. Yes, you have the station. So we, do, we, we, we try to operate as, as a ship. Um, and, uh, you know, the hazards that can happen on a ship are very similar to the hazards that can happen on the island. You know, things like fire, uh, things like, um, you, know, you know, accidents, people falling, turning ankles, uh, electric shocks, things like uh, things of that nature. Um, we could even have man overboard because sometimes, you know, the waves in the cove when we're receiving a boat uh, on the boat ramp, that's, it's, it's, it's a dangerous situation. Now, having said that, you know, obviously it's, it's not dangerous because we do it right. And there's a protocols to follow and we make sure people follow protocols. Uh, but those are times when things could get messy very, very quickly. And so we, we really have to design a program that is super, super safe and, uh, you know, just to absolutely minimize whatever liability uh, there is. Because as you know, and all lighthouse keepers know, it's not a matter of when it hits the fan, it will hit the fan. Mm -hmm. And, and then it's just about, it's about your training. Uh, and, you know, hopefully, 
the training is so ingrained in you. It, it's just muscle memory and you just do what you have to do to get out of the problem. And of course, another factor is storms uh, out there. And uh, I know, for instance, uh, Hurricane Bill mm. did a lot of damage there in 2009, including uh, destroying the classroom building, uh, yep. which was a- actually under construction when I was out there in 2002. Yes. Uh, and uh, I'm wondering what your personal experience might be with, with major storms out there. My experience is, is they're getting more violent. You know, we used to enjoy fairly welcome hiatuses between storms, but they're, they seem to be coming closer and closer together these days. And I, and I have no data to back that up, except it's just a, it's just a gut feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, we haven't had anything like Bill lately. He says touching wood as close as he can. Bill was absolutely devastating to us. Uh, and the remarkable thing about Bill was if you were, if you were on shore at the time, it was not, it didn't appear to be that, spectac- that spectacular. Now, that said, tragically, two people did lose their lives uh, because they were just, you know, they were wave watching and they were too close to the cliffs. But it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't this kind of like tiles flying horizontally through the, or shingles flying horizontally through the air type thing. It was just swell. The, you know, the hurricane was way offshore when it came past us. Now, that said, that swell was probably at least 30 to 40 feet high. Uh, we know that because when we got back to the building after the damages um, and we looked at the buildings, uh, we found the high tide mark at the top of the first floor ceiling of the main house. So, you know, that's, that's, that's how far the water was getting up. The, you know, we knew the hurricane was coming. So we had prepared the house. We had boarded everything up. Um, those boards worked in the sense that when we got back to the island, we found the front door about 20 foot away inside the house in the kitchen with the board still attached. So the board protected the door, <laughs> but it didn't protect the door frame. <laughs> so, you know, I just, uh, and then we know there's accounts in logbooks that when the storms get bad, the keeper would go and his family would go to the light tower because the, mm-hmm. you know, the tower is this thick, thick granite. And that's where we would have to have been because, you know, it must have been absolutely astonishing uh, to see this. So the final count was ground floor of the main building, pretty much entirely ruined, inundated by water. We were missing the entire boathouse. We have no clue where it is. And the tragedy of that was we just finished putting a brand new, beautiful roof with copper flashing gone. And uh, we, we, you know, it's, it's out there in the Sargasso floating, I'm sure. Mm. And then this bizarre thing where we lost the bottom floor of the, what you would call the, um, the engineer's house behind uh, the, the main lightkeeper's house. Um, we lost two walls of that bottom floor. And the top floor remained suspended on the last two floors, um, heavily racked into one corner. So it was just, the thing about the rock is it, it grabs you and it demands attention and it makes you fall in love with it. And then, you know, I just remember landing on the island and this, the, the feeling was so, so somber. Uh, just the, the, the sheer devastation. I remember actually Katrina had just happened and it just, Katrina just felt just a little bit remote and kind of unreal. 
but then you sort of had your own, your own mini version of Katrina right there in front of you uh, to see the entire contents of the house spilled out all over the island, wood everywhere, timber everywhere, wreckage everywhere. You know, five-ton rocks moved 300 meters in a different direction. Just... The power of the storm must have been absolutely incredible, but you know there were there were tears that day, because you know it's 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 a labor of love, and we so many of us invest so much time in this place without compensation because we love the place, and to see it devastated like that was was absolutely terrible, and it it, it was we were definitely pretty depressed about it for a long time. Uh, luckily, we managed to turn that around, and now the rock I don't think has ever looked better. But uh, mm-hmm. at the time, it was it was horrible. Oh, I'm sure. I think I'd have more than a few tears. I remember talking to John Baxter, who was a Coast Guard keeper there in the early 60s. And he was there for, I think it was Hurricane Daisy in 1962. That's another one. Yeah. And he talked about taking refuge in the tower. And uh, he said it was extremely scary. And it did quite a bit of damage to the buildings there in 62. Right. Because, yeah. because hindsight, you know you made it. But at the mm-hmm. time, you wonder, are the waves going to get any bigger? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just, yeah. The maintenance is, is never ending, of course, in a place like that. Uh, it's just, it, yeah, you, it's, like, it's yeah. like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. Once you've done it, you start again. Right. Yeah. The upkeep must be extremely expensive and uh, just never ending. It is. It is. It's a money pit. It's a money pit that we love, so we continue to throw money into it. The, so obviously, you feel it's it's worth the the burden and expense. The educational, the educational benefits we get out of this island, and the research benefits we get out of the island, right now, totally outweigh whatever we put into it. So, so it's yes, it's absolutely worth it. And you know, the rock has become um, somewhat iconic to the college. You know, it's 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 sort of representative of what the college is. Um, it's representative of a time that the college is no longer in. Uh, you know, obviously, I think the rock was probably most iconic to the college back in the 70s and the 80s when the college was first starting. Back then, uh, the college had a, a strong reputation in marine mammal science. But of course, the college does so many fantastic, wonderful things beyond whales. And it's, it's, it's really only fair that those other things get some of the limelight too. So I think in recent years, it's, it's, it's perhaps not been as prominent. Uh, but I would still say that marine sciences is something that the college does really, really well. Because starting from your very first year, we get you out there on the water doing stuff and getting you wet and getting you to understand. I mean, the best way to understand the ocean, right, is to be on the ocean, right? It's not, it's not something you look at through a TV screen. Um, you need to be out there in the movement of the water and the, the spray in your face and the, the cold seeping into your bones. I'm making it sound miserable, but I love this stuff. I <laughs> love it. And it's, yeah. just, it's just part of who I am, and it will always be part of who I am. I can't imagine ever living anywhere other than on a coastline. Uh, but to get to your other question, um, you know, what, what does the rock look like now? I think the rock has never looked better. Now, that's not to say we don't have lots to do. The next priority for us is probably the light tower. The light tower needs to be repointed. Uh, and, uh, you know, we need to, we need to do some, make some, give some attention to the masonry and give some attention to the carpentry inside the tower. 
But uh, as I was mentioning earlier on, we were very, very lucky to get the support of the Mars family back in, um, it would have been around 2013, 2014. And uh, they helped fund the reparation after Hurricane Bill. And uh, it allowed us to really do things right. And um, I will mention one person by name, and I hope I don't embarrass him, a former student of the college who has been in Allied World for a very long time, Dan Dandanto, an absolute terrific person who is a, a remarkable whale researcher in his own right, uh, but also incredibly handy. Uh, and um, has ended up in, in a business of um, articulating whale skeletons for museums. But he is also a great house builder. And he, you know, so it's, it's not just enough that you know how to build a house. It's enough, you need to know how to build a house offshore where you can't go down to the hardware store and get another box of nails. And, you know, you have to think about, well, how am I going to generate my power? How am I going to lift that timber when there's no crane around? All those kinds of things. And Dan knows what to do. So um, Dan was the former for the project and uh, in, consult in consultation with me, we, you know, we, we redesigned where we wanted to go uh, with the money that we've been given. And uh, it was just a, a project lasted four years, to, it, four years of rebuilding. And as a result of that, we now have a boathouse that is an absolute tank. It's a beast of a house. You, you know, I'd, I'd like to see the storm well, maybe I would not like to see the storm that finally knocks this one over. Uh, it's the, the schedule of the wood in there. You know, we're using eight buys and 12 buys as, uh, as, as, as lumber. It's all post and beam. Uh, we redesigned the boathouse um, slightly in that we now have a, a blind in the attic so students can use the, the attic part of the boathouse to look out over the seal colonies and do behavioral observation work. We, uh, we, using the same style repair, we rebuilt, we jacked up. I don't know whether you know this, but in Maine, we're famous for jacking houses. So <laughs> we had that skill. We jacked up the perfectly, still in very good condition, second floor of the generator shed, put a new first floor underneath, lowered the second floor back down to the first floor, uh, you know, using some really, really savvy people. Um, local builders and also sort of alumni of the college, Matt Drennan, Scott, uh, Scott Swan, also just remarkable builders who know how to work offshore and amazing naturalists in their own right. So they rebuilt the generator shed that way. That is now a classroom on the top as well as a fully equipped workshop on the bottom. So, you know, a lot of our students end up making the equipment that they need to use. So they have access to a full carpentry and a, a metal shop kind of thing down, down below. We totally redesigned the first floor of the, of the Vikeeper's house. And for the first, well, we returned to civility. We actually have sit-down toilets inside the house again. Wow. <laughs> and that's huge because we used to have outhouses. Yeah. And, um, you know, going out to use the outhouse in the pitch fog, with the with the lonely lonely foghorn and the uh, the uh, the moaning male gray seals uh, <laughs> was was often a very very intimidating event. Uh, so yeah, we've uh, we have in indoor sanitation, which is fantastic. Yeah, and we have uh, it's 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 a it's a remarkable place. So we can actually now sleep up to twenty people out there, mm. and uh, we we typically have classes of eight to ten out there hopefully on a, an annual basis. That's our plan. 
your description of going out to use the uh, the outhouse with the sound of the seals and everything made me think of the movie The Lighthouse for some reason. Have you seen yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it seemed like a it scene that. out of that. Yeah. But it's 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 a uh, if you've ever heard it, it's a really eerie, ghosty sound. Uh, it just if you if you don't know what it is, it's like oh yeah. So I'm wondering when you're out there and you know in these these historic light station buildings. Do you sometimes think about what life was like for those light keepers and families on the rock who were out there year round? You know, for a long time, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine, but that was a family light station. You know, kids grew up on the rock and they lived there all year. Do you think about what it was like for those people? All the time, hmm? all the time, uh, for a number of reasons. First, first of all, you know, as, as spectacular as, as spectacularly severe weather as we see, can you imagine being out there in the winter? And uh, we've actually sent students out there in the winter time, and they've just they've they've come back just absolutely exhilarated by the sheer power of nature that they've seen out there. But I think one of the main reasons why I think about them is because they figured out how to do it, and you know, bizarrely enough. There seems to be a, this, this period of time, and I can't quite work out when it was, a time of mechanization or electronics or whatever, that we, we chose to do things differently for a time. And, you know, those things fail. You know, uh, electrics, and I always say electrics and salt water mix incredibly well once, and then they don't work anymore. And then, you know, you've got to go back to the old ways. So increasingly, you know, when we think about these problems, we've often gone back to the other, well, how did they do it? Case in point, how do you land a bunch of equipment on the shore in heavy swell conditions? Uh, right now, for us, if there's heavy swell, because we're reliant on bringing our um, supplies out on the Osprey, which is our, uh, you know, our new research vessel, and then tendering it across on a Zodiac and going through the very hairy landing of landing a Zodiac on those boat rails. I think you've done that, so you know what that's about. What they did was they swung a boom out from the cove to a, a boat that was just outside the surf zone, safely there holding position. They connect it to a cargo net, and then they swing the boom back in shore with all the cargo on board. I mean, no one gets wet. I mean, it's just, a, it's just a, such, a, such a sane system. And so, you know, more than once I've been there on the boat ramp in, in, you know, in my rubbers, just waiting for, waiting to catch, literally catch the next Zodiac coming in, thinking what I wouldn't give for a boom right now. How much easier would this be if we could just do it that way, right? So you know, th things like that constantly. Uh, water collection. You know, every time I drag up, a, you know, another five-gallon water, water jug, thinking, well, wouldn't it be great to have that roof water collection system working again? Now, there's reasons we can't do that. But, gosh, you know, they, they really did have it. They, they, they figured it out. And, mm -hmm. and the cool thing about that, just to finish this, is that when I first got here, there was this gentleman there, a gentleman, local gentleman. Uh, his name was Wilbur York. Yes, and Wilbur was uh, with his sister were, you may even have pictures of them, were children on Mount Desert Rock. Yeah, you know, I've seen, up in seen the, pictures, in, yeah. Yeah, in the very, so early 20th century. And uh, of course, I met him in his 80s or his 90s. A terrific guy, an amazing character. And uh, we got involved with him because he wanted to come back to the rock and we were only too happy to host him. 
so we, we, we landed him back on the rocks so he could see the place of his childhood. And he had this, the most amazing stories about how they figured out how to do things, things that we kind of lost a little bit when, you know, I, 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 I'm not trying to call the Coast Guard bad or anything like that, but, you know, the, the Coast Guard comes in with a particular kind of way to do things, very mechanical, very uh, standardized. Um, but before that, you know, we had this lightkeeper service that just, they figured it out. They knew, they knew how to do these things. So anyway, um, yeah, I think about them all the time. I mean, what, what, an, what an amazing challenge for these people to do, that, to do what they did. You uh, talk about the, the lighthouse service keepers. As you said, they figured out how to do things, and they were very careful about how they did things. But as careful as they were at places like The Rock, there were tragedies in spite of uh, taking all precautions. There was, uh, for instance, a tragedy in 1920, May 1920 at Mount Desert Rock when uh, Henry Ray, an assistant keeper, uh, was trying to land at the landing slip and his boat overturned. I'm sure the seas were, were very rough uh, and he drowned and another assistant uh, apparently uh, survived the incident, but Ray uh, left a wife and son. There's, a, there's an incredibly rich culture behind the island. Uh, actually, I've got a, a student who wants to do their, their undergraduate thesis on the history of Mount Desert Rock, you know, to capture stories like this and make sure those stories are preserved. I, again, I can, certainly, cer- I can certainly see how that kind of thing can happen. Um, the, the boat ramp, for those of you not familiar, the boat ramp uh, that uh, comes onto the island is a double rail system, which is very typical of the Coast Guard uh, ramps uh, of the area. Uh, and typically the island was surfaced by a kind of dory called the Peapod. And the, the width of the rails is designed in such a way the Peapod fits perfectly between those rails. Um, so you can imagine someone uh, rowing onto those rails and at the last minute, if you don't time it right, you know, you've got a wave coming up right behind you that will totally change the way that your boat is going to approach uh, the waves. Um, I, we don't use P-Pods anymore. Uh, we, we use Zodiacs, uh, inflatable vessels with, um, with outboard engines. Yep. And e- even then, it is still incredibly challenging. Sure. And there, there are times when we, we, we will just call it and we'll say, nope, I'm sorry. I know you can see your groceries on the boat only a hundred yards away, but you're not going to get them today because we simply cannot land on the island. You were quoted in one article as saying that there are all kinds of little folklore stories connected with the rock. Uh, Would you care to uh, tell us a couple of those? (laughs) (laughs) Well, at the risk of scaring any any future students who want to come to the rock, um, the rock is supposedly haunted. Of course. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, it's a lighthouse, right? Of course, it's going to be haunted. Um, and there are, there are various legends behind that. Um, there's, a, there's a fisherman who drowned uh, just offshore uh, of the island. The island is quite rich fishing as well. So we have plenty of lobster boats going out there. And apparently a gentleman was found um, having snagged into his gear and being pulled over by his gear. And, and so the, the story goes that there are ghosts and uh, I've, I've talked with, with people who have lived on the island that have, they all have their ghost stories that they can go to. I've lived on the island a bit and at the risk of sounding kind of glib, I will say that if there are ghosts on Mount Desert Rock, they're happy ghosts. 
you know, I've, I've just, I've never had anything but very, very positive feelings uh, when, when, I, when I'm on the rock and a sort of a feeling of adventure and excitement. Uh, now that said, my students claim there is one bedroom that if you're assigned that bedroom, that apparently uh, you have extremely um, vivid dreams, let us say. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and they all claim it's the room. <laughs> but um, actually some students actually volunteer to go in that room. So, you know, there you go. That's the way it is. But like I said, personally, I've, I've, I've never had anything but, but really sort of very happy feelings about the mm. place. Have you slept in that room? Uh, yeah, I have. <laughs> Didn't okay. have any problems. Didn't have any problems with it at all. But uh, mm. there you go. Now, I will say this, though. You know, again, if, if it's pitch fog out there, and boy, can it get foggy out there. Uh, and, and that's really interesting because in the days of the old light, in the fog, you got this, instead of uh, the, the flashing beam, you'd see the actual five beams coming out, rotating around in the circle. Very, very spooky. And, you know, a combination of this, you know, the sounds of the gulls, the seals uh, you know if you forgot something on the top floor of the light town you have to go they're up there at 11 o'clock at night uh, that <laughs> it takes a little <laughs> bit of nerve it takes a little bit of nerve i would i would say so you know uh i was out there in 2002 on a sunny day but i'll, I'll never forget it i mean the place is is incredible it's it's really like being in another planet uh it's just a, a world unto itself and describing it in the, the fog like that at night, it's got to be incredible. But I'm wondering if there are any other memorable sites or events that stand out in your mind, things you've experienced out there that really stand out. I think getting Wilbur on board the island. Mm -hmm. did, you hear what, yeah, now, did you hear what I just say? Getting him on board. See, I treat it like a ship. So getting him on board the island was, was an incredibly important experience. Um, getting the island back up to scratch after Bill was hugely important. Um, anytime I take a class out there and we're out there for two, three weeks, uh, I, I just bond so well with my students and I'm so proud of them. Uh, they, they just become, they become crew and they become incredibly reliable. The, the last class I had out there, I had seven women that were just, I don't know whether I can say this in your podcast, but I will say it. They were kick-ass. I mean, they <laughs> were just incredible. And, you know, I apologize if you have to bleep the word. It's um, a G-rated podcast, but Kick-Ass was the name of a movie, so I think we can get away with it. We could use it. Okay. I mean, they, they were just extraordinary. I mean, they just, they, they were amazing. They totally rose the challenge. There, was, there were some, some students in that group that I was thinking, well, they, this might be a bit challenging for them. But they all made it. They all made it. They did, they did an incredible job. I have this wonderful, vivid memory of um, a mola mola which is an ocean sunfish, Yes, about 600 pounds washing up um, on, on the beach of Mount Desert Rock because of, we had a big storm that day. And uh, we tried to rescue it, but the surf was too high. And eventually it died. And, and then we decided we we're going to cut it up and do it, do a necropsy, do a sort of like an educational exercise with it. And, you know, these, these, these seven girls around the, the Mola Mola lifting this thing up, this 700-pound fish, um, just extraordinary. And the teamwork it required to do that. And they were working as a team. I was just so, so proud of them. And then, you know, and particularly that, those three weeks, the starscapes we had were just incredible. 
So, you know, it, it's, it's, it brings out the science in you, but it also brings out the human and the artist in you. Just the, just the beauty, the sheer beauty of the island is amazing. And the starscapes were just breathtaking. You just didn't want to go to bed. This, this, you just wanted to keep looking at the stars. You've partly, at least partly answered this question already, but I want to ask you one more time. What do you think students take away from the experience of uh, the time they spend on the rock? A better version of themselves, you know, kind of like 2.0. They learn what they can do. They learn what they're capable of. When I first got to the college, I was a huge fan, and I still am a huge fan, of sending students out on sail training vessels for the very, very same reason. You're put in this environment. It's a very close environment. It's a very challenging environment, physically, mentally, socially, very challenging. And you come out thinking like you can move the world. And you can, because I, I, I deeply believe that anyone can do that. And I think the same thing happens on our islands. I th- you know, it's, it's the same kind of transformative experience. A better version of yourself comes out of this understanding a little bit more about who you are, what, you're, you, know, what you need and what you don't need to survive and what you are capable of. And, and, you know, it's not just about the science. It's about, it's about the whole living experience. It's, you know, it's the understanding how, how the rock is engineered, being able to, you know, chain, uh, clear out the plumbing, being able to service the electrics, uh, being able to hold a power drill and, and do what you need to do. You, you just come out so much more capable. And, you know, it's, it's actually, it's no coincidence to me that some of our strongest graduates from the rock go on to some of the most extreme environments there are on this planet. So for example, I, I do a lot of work in the Antarctic on an annual basis, and I'm now working side by side with some of the very students who have graduated from the rock, you know, and I, I, I'm going to claim absolutely no part in, in their success. They caused their success, but the rock, the rock facilitated that. So we have students now driving, well, not students anymore, alumni, driving zodiacs around ice around 80 foot icebergs because of what they've learned to do on mount desert rock wow that's fantastic that kind of leads into i have one more question for you for bonus points (laughs) and uh that relates a little bit to what you just said but you you've spent a lot of time in some really amazing places like antarctica and newfoundland what is special for you about the main coast and more specifically Mount Desert Rock? I guess I've always been attracted to places that have not been manicured by humans. You know, the sheer wildness of the area. One could make an argument there's no such thing as wilderness on this planet anymore. You know, there is not a place on this planet that humans have not touched in some way, either through climate or through pollution or whatever. But I tend to go to these places that are wild. And uh, for me, the coast of Maine is that. Uh, it, it, it actually feels a lot like Newfoundland to me. You know, if, if you've read my biography, I, I was, and as you can hear in my voice, I was born and raised in London in the UK. So very much an urbanite. The minute I got to Newfoundland, I discovered where I should have been for the past 20 years of my life. Uh, and I just instantly identified and, and discovered what I truly loved about this planet. Um, you know, that, that sort of that interface between ocean and land and the, the wildness of the cliffs uh, just 
felt like home to me. And, uh, you know, the rock and the coast of Maine where I live is, is very, very similar in that regard. It's the complete wildness. And this, you know, this idea that, sorry, I'm going to get a little poetic on you, but just being, just being able to sit on a cliff and look out and maybe to see a whale tail or see a whale blow is just, just so magical. And then to think about the ocean that is just constantly churning, constantly moving, the, the sheer mass and the sheer energy in the ocean. And being at sea level, essentially, on the rock, 25 miles offshore, so you can see the full impact of what the ocean is capable of, is there's just nothing like it. Well, that's a good place to, to wrap it up, I think. Uh, Sean Todd, it is really a pleasure to talk to you today. And uh, This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. The passion you have for what you do is inspirational. It's magical. And I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to talk to you. So, again, thank you so much, Sean. Jeremy, thank you. For more information on College of the Atlantic's programs at Mount Desert Rock, go online to coa.edu and enter Mount Desert Rock in the search box. Before we wrap up this episode, I want to mention another story from the history of Mount Desert Rock Light Station. In his book, Lighthouses of New England, the popular historian Edward Rowe Snow told the story of an unusual wreck near the rock in the 1880s. The schooner Helen and Mary, carrying granite from Halifax, Nova Scotia, sank in a storm close to the light station. The captain's wife, who was also the sister of the first mate, was on board with her baby girl. When the vessel sank, the first mate was able to survive by clinging to some wreckage. As he drifted, the mate saw a package floating by. He snatched it from the water and found that it was his sister's baby girl wrapped in oilskin. Air trapped inside the wrapping had kept the baby afloat. The mate held the child close to him through the night, and the next day the pair was picked up by the crew of the lighthouse tender Iris. That is such an amazing story that I really wanted to include it while we're talking about Mount Desert Rock. My interviews with Sean Todd for this episode and with John Anderson about College of the Atlantic's programs at Great Duck Island Light Station for the previous episode have been two of the most interesting interviews I've had the pleasure of doing. I hope our listeners have enjoyed them too. Thanks to all the members, volunteers, staff, and board members of the United States Lighthouse Society. You can learn more about all that the Society has to offer at uslhs.org. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider a donation to support it or consider becoming a member of the USLHS. Thanks to everyone out there who works to preserve lighthouses or any kind of history. We're all on the same team. As always, thanks for listening and keep a good light. I'm gonna let it shine everywhere I go. I'm gonna let it shine everywhere I go. I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine.